No Stupid Questions is sponsored by Ulta Beauty. This AAPI Heritage Month, Ulta Beauty is celebrating the joy of belonging, belonging to a community composed of intricate connections, belonging to the heritage and birthright that is beauty. Ulta Beauty spotlights the AAPI community passing the mic to brand founders and creators to tell their stories centered on heritage, joy, and beauty. Shop AAPI-owned and founded brands at Ulta Beauty stores and Ulta.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It sounds lewd. Sounds like a delicious cocktail. I'm Angela Duckworth. I'm Stephen Dubner. And And you're you're listening listening to to No Stupid Stupid Questions. Today on the show, what's wrong with cheating on tests? The victims are the law-abiding suckers. (laughs) Angela, we have a question from a listener. His name is Aiden. Okay. Aiden writes to say, I'm a 20-year-old sophomore in college, and I have been cheating since middle school. Through the years, Aiden writes, I have created close to 100 new ways of cheating, mostly (laughs) using the tech realm. I know I am more than capable of not cheating, but it is extremely difficult to motivate doing it. I guess what that means is Aiden has a hard time being motivated to not cheat, right? Right, to actually like do the work, I guess. I guess so, or maybe it's just super fun. Anyway, Aiden goes on to say, even in my favorite classes, I can't help myself but cheat on virtually every assignment. Ironically, I have spent far longer learning how to cheat than the time it takes to actually do the assignment. Also, ironically, this is a remarkably honest email from someone about their lifelong cheating. Unless it's fictional. True. But yeah, let's assume it is. Finally, Aiden ends with a couple questions. Why do I feel motivation to cheat? And is cheating really all that bad? Okay, let's start with number one. Why does someone like Aiden or anyone feel a motivation to cheat? I mean, I think it's in a way a subcategory of a self-control dilemma. When you cheat, you get a little reward immediately, which is you get a better grade or say, let's also expand this to lying. You know, why do we want to tell a lie? Usually because we'll be better off, at least in the short run. I think of it as a self-control dilemma because in the long run, I would argue you're worse off and certainly other people are worse off. So you can tell I'm really anti-cheating here, but I think the motivation is the same reason we have the motivation to do other impulsive things, which is me now thinks it's a great idea because me now benefits. You know, Aiden has a PS to the email, which I'd like to read too, about a year or two ago. I showed my dad, who is a college professor. Oh, my gosh. The possibility of AI, artificial intelligence, being used to write essays for students. I had him give me some of his previous essay prompts, and I put them in the AI. When I showed him the results, he read it and said, this is better than many of my students' essays. (laughs) 
Throughout my life, Aiden continues, I've watched him, his father, spend hundreds of hours pouring his heart and soul into grading and writing detailed notes for his students' papers. Aiden goes on to say that he has not told his father about his own cheating, but as he concludes this email, I can't stop thinking about how depressing the concept of spending so many hours on grading a paper written by an AI is. That being said, this guilt hasn't stopped me from cheating. So, Angela, as a professor and a parent, how does that make you feel? Oh, my God. Aiden, Aiden, (laughs) we need to talk. This is so depressing to me, right? Like, Aiden's father is a professor who spends hundreds of hours devotedly making notes. Sounds like he's a wonderful professor. No professor and no father or mother wants to think of a young person cheating. Well, wait a minute. That sounds obviously true. But I mean, let's back up and just talk about what cheating is and how it differs from environment to environment and why we think Aiden is cheating. Because, I mean, look, my gut reaction is like yours. Cheating, bad. This is terrible. Poor Aiden's dad. On the other hand, Aiden sounds kind of like a badass. Clever, self-aware. And smart. Aiden is smart enough to not want to waste time on stuff he doesn't care about. Maybe he just doesn't think what's being asked of him is worth doing well. So I have shockingly, I think for a psychologist, like a pretty deep conviction that human beings make cost-benefit calculations all the time. You might think only an economist would think that the person thinks in terms of costs and benefits. But as a psychologist, I think that is what we're doing at some level. And it's just that the costs and benefits aren't just dollars and cents. It's, you know, like, is there shame? Is there guilt? Yeah. And I said that an act of cheating is kind of an act of impulsivity because you're doing something that there's some benefit to you now. I mean, let's also talk about what the costs are. I think when someone cheats, they also feel like not a lot of harm is done, if any. I think sometimes people lie, cheat, or steal, thinking there's really no victim. And if you did say to them, hey, by the way, this person over here, they're going to suffer. They're going to get a lower organic chemistry grade because you cheated, changed the curve. Like, you're hurting this person. I think that would dissuade a lot of cheaters from cheating. Now, to be fair, there are many different kinds of cheating, and some of them are more victimless than others, right? Well, let's give some examples, Stephen. Could you tell me what kind of cheating doesn't harm anyone? Well, I'm not saying it doesn't harm anyone, but I would say a continuum is a good way of putting it. We actually wrote about cheating a good bit in Freakonomics, our first book, and a variety of settings. One was sumo wrestlers colluding They cheated. One would throw the match. It was essentially a kind of quid pro quo arrangement. So who lost in that case? Both of the actual participants benefited. Right. Who lost, you could say, are those who have an investment in the integrity of the sport. That can be important. Who lost could be some gamblers, whether professional or amateur. That could be significant. Certainly would be the case, right? Like anybody who bet on the other wrestler. Sure. But you could imagine how they could think, well, I'm not cheating my opponent out of something, and therefore that seems more victimless. So I do think it's always worth looking at the motivations and what people think is the payoff. And, you know, is it true that there is no victim? Like, what if you're on a highway and there's traffic and someone comes zooming up the breakdown lane and then noses in front of you? How do you feel about that? 
well, of course, that makes me mad. I think of the time that I was in line for a bathroom. I think it was 20 people deep. It was in an airport, actually. And this woman just like went to the front of the line, pretended not to speak English. And she was like kind of pantomiming that like, sorry, she didn't understand. Then I remember later watching her speak in fluent English to her daughter. (laughs) It just drove me crazy. So, okay, in that case, you could argue that it harms me that she got in front of me. Oh, how much, right? Like, how much does one person cutting in front of the line really harm you? She occupied one stall. Maybe that's in part what goes through the mind of a cheater. Like, I'll cut the line. Who does it really harm? But the whole problem of self-control is that when you make local decisions and they're kind of like, oh, just this once, how much— harm could it possibly do in the long run. The thing that you make a mistake about is that when you do that, you're more likely to do it again. So it becomes a habit. And it's not a coincidence to me, I think, that Aiden writes about cheating. What does he say? I've created close to 100 new ways of cheating. I've cheated my entire life. This is the slippery slope of cheating. If any of us could stop after one half step on the slippery slope, great. But most of us can't. What does cheating have to do with not just our self-control and not just our self-identity, but with what we think about as our goals? What do you mean? Well, Aiden is cheating a lot, and it may be that depending on his goal, that could be a benefit to some degree. Maybe he's going to end up working in some realm where understanding how to cheat and why people cheat is a great benefit. Maybe he'll work in law enforcement. Maybe he'll work in software. Maybe he'll be in the FBI. So that's why I want to know what you think personal goal setting has to do with our conception, let's say, of how willing we may be to cheat. Because look, if you look at the most elite educational institutions in the world, including your own alma mater, Harvard, including West Point, including Stuyvesant High School, one of the best high schools in New York City. All of these places and many, 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 many others have had big, big, big cheating scandals. So if the idea is that I want to achieve a goal that includes harnessing the reputation and power of this institution, and if the way to get that goal is to perform very, very, very well on the things that are measurable— And if the way to perform better on things that are measurable are to bend some rules, then maybe I'm willing to do it. And maybe it's not a moral issue. Maybe it's utilitarian. I think that's exactly what goes through the head of somebody who is cheating, right? I mean, maybe being honest is a goal. Maybe that's a goal. But you have other goals, right? I remember reading there's like a woman who had lied about where she lived so that her kids could go to a better public school district. But the question was, how bad is that? What happened, actually, to this mother? She had, I think, just gotten divorced. She certainly didn't have a lot of money, couldn't pay for a private school, wanted the best for her children, used, I think, her father's address instead of her own, and then would drive every morning her kids and, of course, cross the county line or whatever, drop her kids off. The school somehow had suspicion about this. They investigated, they prosecuted, and I believe she even served jail time. The version of the story that I read from this journalist's point of view is that if you are cheating in a system which itself is unfair, is it still cheating? 
I think there's also a calculus a lot of people perform when there's an institution involved. So if I'm an individual or a family and who is being cheated if I choose to cheat is some big faceless board of education or government. I think about this a lot with people who cheat on their taxes. They have a very almost airtight story they tell themselves, which is, well, I'm already paying some taxes. Right. And the rate is too high. And so I'm going to find a way to protect myself from that. And what they don't think about then is who are the victims there? The victims are the law-abiding suckers (laughs) who pay their full share. And of course, the people in society who are supposed to be on the receiving end of redistribution through taxation, they also suffer. You start to minimize it, I guess, by not paying attention to who the victims are or just saying like, yeah, but everybody suffers so little. Like, who cares? Can you just talk to me a little bit more about what we know about cheating becoming essentially a habit? How does that happen and how quickly does it happen? The research on this has been done by a number of people, but I think most famously by Dan Ariely, who is a psychologist. I think his affiliation is still Duke University. He's a bit of a globetrotter. And who was himself one of the authors on a paper on honesty that had to be retracted because some of the data were somewhere between messy and faked. Yes, I know. You can't make this stuff up, but that's true. He was a co-author on a paper that had to be retracted. Literally, the paper was on honesty, and literally the paper was retracted because somebody had (laughs) fudged the data. In this paper, there were multiple behavioral scientists. It was like a field study, I think, with an insurance company. And so it's also possible that somebody in the corporate partner who wanted the results to turn out to be interesting and important changed this one this one line of data actually had a different font. It's pretty definitive when they actually looked at the Excel file and they're like, huh, this one line is different. Right. So clearly somebody changed the data and there was lying happened, cheating happened, whatever. The question is, who is responsible for it? Right. But if I'm the author, I know he was one of several authors on a paper, but if you're the author on a paper and it has to be retracted, I mean, this is looping back to when you cheat, who's actually harmed by it? But this is slightly different, which is when something you work on has been found to be dishonest, To what degree do you bear responsibility, even if you can't figure out exactly how the bad thing happened? I think almost every single co-author on this study actually came out and made some kind of public statement. So say this happened to me, right? I'm on a lot of papers and I have a lot of collaborators. And say there is a paper that came out that has my name as co-author on it and somebody lied and like put in a line of data that shouldn't be. First of all, I will say, yes, I would take responsibility. I would have to. But secondly, I would say like, Stephen, how would it be plausible for me to like download every data file and then scan it for cheating It's really beyond, I think, what's possible for, like, I think the president of Stanford right now is being investigated for a paper that I think published in Science, and I think he's like third author on it. His background is neurobiology, neuroscience, and so those kinds of papers don't just have data files, they have like pictures of neurons. It turns out that these pictures, I don't know what they were photoshopped. They were actually pastries, maybe, instead of neurons? (laughs) 
<laughs> that would be very problematic. No, it wasn't quite that far, but this picture was like actually the same picture as in this other paper, but like that's supposed to be a different data set. So I just want to say when people say to me like, oh, what do you think about the president of Stanford? He was on this paper that needs to be retracted because there was some fudging of the data. But I'm thinking to myself like, okay, if you're not the first author, meaning you take primary responsibility or the senior author, so it's your lab, your grant, like you're the third author. I'm not excusing it. And I'm not saying that you don't bear some responsibility, but like really plausibly, how are you supposed to audit everything? At some level, there's trust. At some level, you trust your collaborators and you trust your students. I think this is the very reason why Aiden has to think about what the real cost of his everyday cheating is doing, because what you're doing is you're eroding the institution of trust. Still to come on No Stupid Questions, Stephen and Angela discuss an online trend that showcases immoral behavior as a fun game. I would appreciate a slightly higher level of creativity than just toilet vandalism. No Stupid Questions is sponsored by Rosetta Stone. Traveling is so much more meaningful when you understand the language of the place you're visiting. Rosetta Stone, one of the most trusted language learning programs, has helped millions learn new languages and can help you too. With Rosetta Stone, you'll learn intuitively. You're trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your chosen language. You'll be prepared for real, authentic conversations. Plus, their True Accent feature gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with the Rosetta Stone app, you can learn anytime, anywhere, with customizable lessons as short as 10 minutes. For a very limited time, our listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash questions. That's rosettastone.com slash questions. No Stupid Questions is sponsored by IXL Learning. Instead of costly private tutoring, IXL Learning can give your child the help they need at an affordable price. IXL is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. It's designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way with positive feedback. And you get one site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. There's a reason why IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. If your child is struggling, this is the smartest investment you can make. And a month of IXL costs less than an hour of tutoring. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And No Stupid Questions listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com questions. Visit IXL.com questions to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Now, 
back to Stephen and Angela's conversation about the gray areas of cheating. So, Angela, to Aiden's second question, is cheating really all that bad? Yes. Yes, Aiden. (laughs) Okay, so a slightly longer answer than yes would be yes, especially because cheating happens a lot in academia, which starts very young. Like in education, you mean? Right. The minute you go to school, you get grades. And I remember kids were cheating in first grade, second grade. And then because cheating is, as you put it, a habit, once you start It becomes a more natural thing to do. And then once the stakes get higher than school, things like cheating on taxes, things like insurance fraud, then yes, cheating is bad because it's bad for society. I think that's actually what Dan Ariely would say is that there is a slippery slope whose bottom, like what's at the bottom of the slippery slope? Lots of victims. Eventually you end up cheating on bigger things. But I think this research, and I want to go on the record, when this scandal with this honesty paper came out, since it's in my close social networks, so of course everybody was talking about it and most people had an opinion that they wanted to share, at least in confidence with their friends. I don't think that Dan Ariely cheated. I sent him an email actually and I was like, hey, this is... um." stressful, and I trust you. You've always been kind to me, which is true. He doesn't know me very well, but literally every time I have asked Dan Ariely for anything, like, hey, can you write this thing for teachers? Hey, can you send me this paper? Can you give me advice on this? He has unfailingly been generous, and I know generosity and honesty aren't the same thing, but yeah, I'll just go on the record and say, I don't know what happened. I agree somebody cheated or, you know, lied, whatever you want to call it, but I don't think he's guilty. I would like to think you're right. You're kind of connecting his generosity with your belief that he's honest. It does remind me of this big recent news story about this guy, Sam Bankman Freed and his crypto exchange FTX. One reason I find it particularly interesting is because it does come up against this notion of different forms of dishonesty. One thing that's remarkable about this case is that Sam Bankman Freed, even as he's under scrutiny for having potentially committed fraud or at the very least screwed up royally so that this firm that was worth many, many billions is now worth essentially zero. And there will be all kinds of lawsuits and investigations to follow. And all the investors lost their money. Like if you had crypto on this exchange, I think it's now worthless, right? That is probably for the most part true. But one thing that really interested me is even after the disaster had happened, And when most people like him would be getting their lawyers and coming up with the kinds of stories they're going to tell, he has been doing the opposite. He's been talking publicly. He's been doing interviews. He's appeared at some conferences and so on. And there was one interview with a journalist from Vox whose name is Kelsey Piper, who had interviewed him before. So this was just a direct message thread on Twitter shortly after. Kelsey Piper texts to Sam Bankman-Fried, You said a lot of stuff, this is over the years, about how you wanted to make regulations just good ones. In other words, Sam Bankman-Fried positioned himself as, I am the business-friendly, institution-friendly crypto exchange because I believe rather than being this sort of gray or black market, like some crypto has been historically, I think we should integrate ourselves with the real economy and with regulators in Washington. I want to be above board. Right, above board. So this journalist asks, was that pretty much just PR? Sam Bankman-Fried writes back, yeah, just PR, f*** regulators. They make everything worse. (laughs) 
So that sounds pretty bad. At least now he's being honest, right? But then there's more. Now he's asked about this movement called the Effective Altruism Movement, which Sam Bankman-Fried was, I believe, probably the biggest donor to. This is a movement run by a philosopher named Will McCaskill and a few other people. And they had been arguing from a philosophical standpoint that if you want to solve problems in the world for real, the best way to do it is to be effective in your altruism, as the name implies, but also to encourage people who are capable of making a boatload of money and then taking that money and directing it to charitable causes. So in this interview, he's asked about this. He replies, it's what reputations are made of to some extent meaning how one manages one's reputation by being part of this effective altruism movement. He goes on to say, I feel bad for those who get by it, by this dumb game we woke Westerners play where we say all the right shibboleths and so everyone likes us. I've rarely encountered (laughs) such honesty (laughs) that reflects such, I don't know what you call that, depraved. Like, he's justifying cheating under the pretense of, like, in this corrupt system, actually, I'm net doing more positive. There's actually another paper by Dan Ariely. This one has different co-authors. This is in a Journal of Behavioral and Experimental Economics just last year. The title is Robin Hood Meets Pinocchio, Justifications Increase Cheating Behavior, but decrease physiological tension. And the co-authors are Guy Hockman, Dan Pelig, and Shayar Eyal. These are all psychologists. The point of the study is that you are incentivized to cheat. And in this experiment, the conditions include where you can give the payoff to a charity of your choice. So they're basically looking at the motivation to cheat on behalf of somebody who's not you. This is completely altruistic. And they have different permutations of this experiment. They also have these participants hooked up to a lie detector. You know how lie detectors work, right? I know from watching movies. That's about it. Yeah, I mean, the basic idea in lie detection is that when you have a physiological response to the act of lying, because maybe you have cognitive dissonance, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm lying, or maybe you're nervous that you're going to get found out. But the basic idea is that liars in the act of lying should have like this elevated sympathetic nervous response, this kind of fight or flight response. And one thing that happens when you have that is that you sweat a little, your palms sweat, right? That's where the expression comes from. So they've got this clever experiment. They've got people hooked up to lie detectors. And what they find is that under the conditions where you are justifying cheating, falsifying your results on this little game, because you think it's going to a good cause, you not only cheat more in those conditions, but you also have less of a physiological response. In other words, you don't have this kind of like sweating of the palms. And I think that's probably what happens to Aiden. There's some justification. I mean, I know Aiden doesn't think that money's being donated to charity, but I'm sure there's some rationalization where there's really no real victim. And in fact, the whole system is corrupt anyway. <laughs> I mean, you can make up a thousand stories. I wonder... If this conversation we've had about cheating and the incentives thereof and the victims thereof and the justifications thereof and so on, so on, so on, might suggest that we should go back to the beginning and talk about 
education and how it works. And I don't mean to dump everything on our education system, which is a convenient and common thing to do. Say, oh, our education system is broken. We do everything wrong. I think that's probably a significant overstatement. Not always helpful. Right. But I do wonder if this is yet another reason to think about how we teach our children and other people's children and the degree to which we emphasize grades over learning. Because if grades are paramount, there's always going to be incentive to cheat. And with the incentive to cheat will come some cheating. And as we've discussed here, it can become a habit. Then do we turn into a society of cheaters where it hurts everyone down the road? And so therefore, should we use this as an occasion to look at how cheating really starts to happen, which is not always, but often in school, and think about using that as a motivation to change the way we think about teaching generally? So are you proposing, for example, that if we could not have quizzes and tests and final exams and so forth, then there wouldn't be the occasion to cheat. And therefore, we wouldn't have children learning to cheat. And then later on, we'd have a more honest society. Are you thinking that it's in a way the assessments to blame? Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. And I'm hardly the only person to suggest that intense, high stakes assessments can be bad for education. I mean, obviously, that's a big conversation. And I'm also not saying that we need to eliminate quizzes and tests and exams because there are all different sorts of functions that those can serve. I think the question that you're asking, Stephen, is whether the assessment system that we have built in part and parcel from kindergarten onward in formal education, whether that's at the root of the problem, I don't think it is. And here's why. I told you about this woman at the airport who pretended she couldn't speak English, cut the line, later see her speaking fluent English at the food court. Like, there are so many occasions in life where we can cheat. Anytime where there's trust, there's the opportunity to cheat. And so if you took out all quizzes, tests, and final exams from formal education, you'd still have recess, right? You know, in <laughs> recess, like, oh, is that person over the line? Did you catch that ball? Like, you are going to still have opportunities to tell the truth or to not tell the truth. It's true that we have these high-pressure testing situations in which cheating becomes more advantageous, as it were. But I don't think we fix the problem by taking those out because there's so many other occasions to cheat. I would love to hear from listeners about a time that you or someone you know cheated and how it worked out. I like that prompt. And um, I heard this expression recently from my daughter, Lucy. Have you heard of a devious lick? Ooh, I have not heard of a devious lick. It sounds... Lude. Sounds like a delicious cocktail. Oh, well, it could sound like that, too. I think it's like a TikTok phenomenon. Oh, my God, I sound so old telling you about this, but you sound even older because you haven't even heard of it. Well, there is a thing called TikTok, and then on TikTok, <laughs> they show these little videos. I think adults of our age should only be allowed to use the phrase TikTok when speaking... About an actual cuckoo clock. <laughs> yes, right. So I guess a lick is like stealing something. Like a devious lick is this social media phenomenon where usually it's 
it's an act of vandalism. So like you'll have a school where like somebody posts, you know, clogging up all the toilets with bathroom tissue. So it's not exactly cheating, but I think it falls into this broader category of dishonesty. So I like your prompt, right? Record a voice memo about a time where you were dishonest. I like it. Whether you cheated, lied, or stole, whether you did a devious lick or something like it, and then how it turned out. And if you could add whatever self-awareness you have now, looking back on this act. Nice. Use the voice memo function on your phone. Send it to us at nsq at freakonomics.com. I have to say, Angela, as you were telling me about the devious lick, I was so disappointed because I thought, oh, well, this is going to be a great case where modern technology has updated the way that we <laughs> behave. But if you're still just clogging up toilets in your school, I mean, kids, we were doing that a long time ago. They're doing it at scale, though, now, Stephen. I'd like to think you could be much, much, much more devious than that. I don't want you to get carried <laughs> away, but I would appreciate a slightly higher level of creativity than just toilet vandalism, because that is really... Um, that's old school. And I think new times call for new vandalism. Okay, Stephen, I have something to say both to you and your call out for, you know, more inventive devious licks and also to Aiden. And I'm sorry, it's going to be very school marm because I'm definitely team honesty here. You're going to appeal to his inner self somehow, aren't you? You're going to tell him that he's going to feel better about himself if he stops. I'm going to give him a technique, like a way of thinking about a choice because there are always these options to cheat and then, of course, to not cheat, right, to be honest. So in behaviorism, in this branch of psychology, you know, it's been around for decades now. There's this guy named Howard Racklin, now deceased, but he was a great behavioral scientist. And he said of self-control dilemmas, anytime you're going to decide, like, should I cheat on this exam? Should I cut the line? In any of these choice options, you can either frame things narrowly, which is just this once, like, just this once should I cut the line? Just this once should I cheat on the test? Like, who would suffer? Or you can do what Racklin called patterning and other scientists call, like, choice bundling. It's kind of like what Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, said about the categorical imperative, which is to say that you want to think of every choice as something that you would make again and again and again to infinity. Now, Kant said, of course, when you make the choice, you should ask yourself, is this something that I would rule that everybody would do for all of society, act as you would want all other people to act. But with yourself, you could just say, like, is this the way I want to act every time I'm waiting in line for the bathroom? Is this the way I want to act every single time somebody asks me to tell the truth? And is there evidence that this changes behavior? There is. You know, not a lot of it, I will say, but there's been a little bit of research suggesting that, for example, when you ask somebody, not in the realm of cheating, but like in a more typical impulsivity question, you know, do you want to have a healthy snack or an unhealthy snack? If you ask people to make a one-off decision, very frequently they choose the unhealthy snack. But if you say, like, whatever you decide, this is the snack you're going to have to have for the rest of the week. So the next time you're like, oh, it's three o'clock, maybe I'll have a donut just this once, you can also frame that as, like, do I want to have a donut every single day at three o'clock or do I want to have an apple? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah is there any doubt? 
<laughs> you're like, yes, please. Two donuts. Wait, 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 wait. Just so I understand, you're saying I can have donuts for a week and I'm supposed to say <laughs> no? Is that really what you're trying to tell me? Yes. And and at the extreme, it's like a donut every day at three o'clock forever, Stephen. I can see why we are a society of cheaters, because honestly, if that's the choice between donuts and not cheating, yeah, donuts sound delicious. I know there's got to be some people who would be like, oh, it sounds great. Donuts to infinity. But there are many people where when the framing changes from just this once to forever, that when they ask themselves about a pattern of behavior, they would choose the healthier pattern. They would choose the more honest pattern. I don't mean to belittle the whole idea by focusing on the donut, which just kind of captured my imagination. But it sounds like you are saying directly to Aiden, Aiden, consider that this is not a choice that affects you in this moment or on this day, but consider if this is the person that you want to be, essentially. Is that what you're saying to Aiden? Yeah. I mean, one could argue that what character really is, is the pattern of your behavior over time. And so you get to choose, like, what pattern do I want? And if Aiden, upon reflection, you think, like, I want to be the sort of person who consistently, in all kinds of situations, cannot be relied on to tell the truth— look at me with this loaded tone in my voice. Look at you. Then that is a choice. But I think there is so much to cheating, lying and stealing of this kind of like just this once victimless framing. And I think if we expand the framing to be like, it's not just this once, it's starting down a slippery slope. And also if you expand the framing to be like, oh yeah, well, there is this victim and there is that victim, I think it will incline us toward honesty. So thanks for the question, Aiden. It was provocative, plainly, and I hope you're listening. I'm guessing, Aiden, that you will choose the pattern that your father seems to exemplify. That's my school marm angle. School marm cum behavioral scientist. <laughs> no Stupid Questions is produced by me, Rebecca Lee Douglas. And now here's a fact check of today's conversation. In the first half of the show, Angela tells the story of a woman convicted of falsifying documents to enroll her daughters in a higher-performing school district. Angela was thinking of Kelly Williams Bowler, a single mother from Akron, Ohio, who was jailed in 2011. Later, Angela refers to a scandal involving Mark Tessier-Levine, the president of Stanford University. Evidence of research misconduct was found in multiple papers that Tessier-Levine was credited on, not just one. And Tessier-Levine was the senior author on three of them, not the third author, as Angela said. Tessier-Levine says that the images that have come under scrutiny originated in his collaborators' laboratories, but that he takes responsibility for, quote, "...any concerns that arise with respect to any work with which I have been involved." That's it for the fact check. Before we wrap today's show, let's hear from some of our listeners. We recently released a brand new NSQ episode in the Freakonomics radio feed. The episode explores how your immediate environment affects your mood, focus, and success. During the conversation, Stephen says that he needs complete quiet and comfort to get things done. But his Freakonomics co-author, Steve Levitt, can concentrate, quote, whether it's 100 degrees or 50 degrees, whether it's noisy or not noisy, whether a building is designed well or whether it's a cave. We asked listeners whether they identified more with Team Stephen Dubner or Team Steve Levitt. Here's what you said. 
Hello, Stephen and Angela. This is Jared in Queen Creek, Arizona. When it comes to needing a quiet space for working, I am definitely on Team Dubner. We recently had a similar instance that Angela was talking about with smoke detectors going off in their home, and it drove me absolutely nuts. I couldn't stand working even though my office was in the opposite part of the house as the smoke detector that was intermittently chirping. In fact, I was in a meeting with about 30 people, and one of the guys that was reporting out had a smoke detector that kept chirping intermittently in the background, and I could feel the tension in the meeting growing as people were trying to let him know that his smoke detector was chirping, which he was obviously oblivious to. And finally, when there was a pause in the conversation, about half the group chimed in and asked him to mute his mic and go find the smoke detector that was chirping. It was funny how he had no idea it was going off, whereas the rest of us were just being driven up the wall by his nonstop chirping. My name is Tina Gaither, and I'm from Streetsboro, Ohio. I'm going to side with the Levitt camp, I, especially in college, had no issue with focusing regardless of what was going on in the background. Would drive my roommate nuts because often she would walk into a room and I was studying with both radio and TV on. However, I will say that's starting to change as I've aged and I'm finding that I need to turn the music down or completely turn the TV off in order to concentrate and focus. Hi, Steven. Hi, Angela. I'm Kelly Daniels. I once ran into uh, trouble in Mexico. I'd been staying there for a while and, and wanted to write a novel. I would try to write on the beach in a little cafe or, you know, one of those little open air cafes and order a coffee. And I just couldn't concentrate. It was just too lovely. And the temptation to just get up and walk along the beach, jump into the ocean was too great or to switch from coffee to beer. But my number one favorite place to write our library, especially like a kind of a more modern library, a large one. I can just really settle in for a good four hour session and find a little desk in the corner, get my coffee. And that's my favorite. Thanks. Bye. That was respectively Jared Jensen, Tina Gaither and Kelly Daniels. Thanks so much to them and to everyone who sent us their thoughts. You can go listen to our special NSQ episode for Freakonomics Radio, Can Our Surroundings Make Us Smarter, in the Freakonomics Radio podcast feed. And remember, we'd still love to hear your stories about lying, cheating, and devious licks. Send a voice memo to nsq at freakonomics.com. Let us know your name, and if you'd like to remain anonymous, you might hear your voice on the show. Coming up next week on No Stupid Questions, Stephen and Angela discuss what happens when super disciplined people lose self-control. Tiger Woods, very self-disciplined about his training, not so self-controlled in the domain of lust. That's next week on No Stupid Questions. No Stupid Questions is part of the Freakonomics Radio Network, which also includes Freakonomics Radio, People I Mostly Admire, and Freakonomics MD, all our shows are produced by Stitcher and Renbud Radio. This episode was mixed by Eleanor Osborne with help from Jeremy Johnston. Catherine Mancure is our associate producer. Our executive team is Neil Carruth, Gabriel Roth, and Stephen Dubner. Our theme song is And She Was by Talking Heads. Special thanks to David Byrne and Warner Chapel Music. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free, subscribe to Stitcher Premium. 
You can follow us on Twitter at NSQ underscore show and on Facebook at NSQ show. If you have a question for a future episode, please email it to NSQ at Freakonomics.com. To learn more or to read episode transcripts, visit Freakonomics.com slash NSQ. Thanks for listening. You're still mad about that lady who cut in front of you in the airport. So mad about that lady. Yeah, I'll never forgive. The Freakonomics Radio Network. The hidden side of everything. Stitcher. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.